Hey everybody, it's Raghu. I'm back with Mind Rolling and we have a new idea that we're going to pursue. We'll see how y'all like it. Uh, it's, it's a little bit of a different approach, but I've done so many podcasts on Mind Rolling uh, for the last number of years. Four years? I don't know. But there are some unbelievable people that I've had a chance to uh, talk to and share with. And I thought over all sorts of different subjects. And um, so we thought, well, let's pick something out that uh, would be of great interest and uh, put it together uh, with the different uh, people who represented different points of view about this subject. Sounds like a good idea. Let's see what happens here. Um, I mean, I obviously, I've heard it, and it was put together by our wonderful people at um, Be Here Now Network and Ganesh Braymiller being the point person. Uh, along with Corey. So, science and spirituality, that is the topic. And and how does that connect in, in terms of the age, this modern age that we're in? And so we put together some hand-picked clips, as I said, uh, previous mind-rolling, one, one or two, maybe a couple of them are with my my old partner, David Silver, who you hear from from time to time. We, we do podcasts together. David's hard at work uh, finishing a movie and working on a book. Uh, Ananda Danielle Credick and Dr. from Google, Dr. Bruce Damer. Bruce is just phenomenal. Lisa Broderick, who talked a lot about time. And Dennis McKenna, obviously talking about the effect of psychedelics. So here we go. Now... The first clip is uh, something from Quantum Siddhas and Selflessness, and it's ep episode 88. Wow, that's a long time ago. It's with David. And uh, we explore the science be behind quantum entanglement in relation to the miracles surrounding Siddhas like Neem Karoli Baba and the synchronicities in our everyday lives. So listen here. But this quantum entanglement, Dave, is, is really, this article is something else. Uh, first of all, I guess we should just say, entanglement concerns the behavior, and by the way, uh, again, the author is David Kaiser. Uh, uh, entanglement concerns the behavior of tiny particles, such as electrons, that have interacted in the past and then moved apart. Tickle one particle here, whatever they mean by tickle, by measuring one of its properties, its position, momentum, or spin, and its partner should dance instantaneously, no matter how far away the second particle has traveled. The key word is instantaneously. The entangled particles could be separated across the galaxy. And somehow, according to quantum theory, measurements on one particle should affect the behavior of the far-off twin faster than light could have traveled between them. Yeah, wow. Okay, and then, so the, the amazing thing is, okay, first of all, Einstein, 
he didn't believe in this. Right? He said, spooky action at a distance, he huffed to a colleague in 1948. So this has been around for quite some time, in fact, 50 years. Uh, so in this article, uh, it's demonstrated that quantum theory requires entanglement. It requires it. So it's really, a, it, it upends so much in this area. The strange connectedness is an inescapable, inescapable feature of the equations. So they started doing tons of tests, right? And they absolutely confirmed that, uh, as they say, in the face of critics who felt such philosophical research was fit only for crackpots, found that the answer appeared to be yes, it indeed is a reality. So I want to relate. So this is what, Dave, I thought of when I, I read this uh, article. And, you know, far be it that I have any real understanding uh, of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just getting the, the gist of the amazing thing at, across galaxies instantaneously when one thing is in some way prompted that, th the, uh, that there is no distance that matters, that the reaction is instantaneous. And so it made me think of Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji and the numerous, almost innumerable stories of him appearing in two places at the same time. How could that be? This article starts to substantiate the reality of, of someone who's completely uh, at one with it all universal intelligence, down to the smallest protons, molecules, electrons, and is able to re reorganize that and create exactly what they're talking about here. That's what I thought was, I mean, I may be far reaching on, on this no, I comparison, think, but I, I really this, don't think you are. I think that's an amazing analogy, you know, and um, I would, go a little lower down the scale than that for myself, which is that how many times have we experienced thinking about someone who we haven't thought about for ages? Let's not talk about someone we think about all the time, like our wives or partners or parents or something, friends, but someone who we haven't thought of for a long time, we think of them, and then they call within hours. It happened to me uh, this week, this week. Uh, uh, someone who I talked to, used to talk to all the time, haven't spoken to him for several, six months, and thought about him and thought, I'll give him a call as usual, didn't give him a call, and he called. Now, the chances of that happening by so-called coincidence are, are slight, you know, really, when you think about it. There are 320 million people in the United States. So I see that as being, you know, someone told me that quantum theory is a lot about what you put out comes back, karma, classic karma, you know. But the, no matter what it is, no matter how micro-thought it is or whatever it is, that it goes out and there's a resultant almost Newtonian uh, response, even though Newtonian physics has been kind of outdated by quantum physics and mechanics. But it's like that. You put out a thought, space and time don't matter. I'm in New York, this person is 2,000 miles away. Um, it just goes there. And no one has been able to explain this, but this, what you just brought up about Nincaroli on a, a lower level, because we're not talking about someone with those powers. But all of us 
with the power of thought, right? We've all got the power of thought. And when we think, we do actually think of something, even if it's within a maya and a delusion. We are thinking within that delusion. Someone else catches it inexplicably up to now. It's like, oh, it's just magic. Well, according to this, it's not magic. It's actually science, right? Yeah, that's what's mind-blowing that they're proving. I mean, they actually, it says at the end of the article, they have to go in and completely, uh, they have to change up their uh, manner in which, and their methodology in which they nudge, as they say, the ele- these particles, the electron, because they want to take out any possibility of human just by the kinds of instruments that are being calc- you know, calib- they're using for calibration. So anyway, it's very, very uh, complex. Uh, so, but they're going further with experiments that would uh, completely prove this to be a reality. And this, you know, there's uh, so many other things that that happen along these lines that we all go, wow, how did that happen? You know, and, uh, and one of them certainly is in the NDE area, folks, you all hope, hopefully heard that uh, pretty far out podcast we did on NDEs with Ram Dass, and it went a further afield into what happens when you make that transition. Uh, so, uh, and it, it applies to other levels too, Ron. You know, the last time I spoke to Deepak Chopra, not to name drop, but to name drop, um, he told me lots of stories, but one of them was about this. Uh, after 9-11, um, Deepak found out about a, a guy in London who was a superintendent in a building and talked extensively about the fact that he'd had premonitions of 9-11. And um, uh, Deepak actually paid for him to come to Northern California and be in, at his institute and studied him. Southern. Actually, and, you know, and found out that he was completely, you know, uh, dis- uh, uh, what's the opposite of disingenuous? It's not ingenuous, right? But it means innocent of of, yeah. of corruption or, or, you know, a distortion. And he said he was the purest person you could ever imagine. And um, after weeks and weeks and weeks of studying him, he found him to be completely honest. And the guy had told people. He hadn't just had this thought. He told people. And again... That suggests the breakdown of time and space. You know, the time and space are just our illusion because we're born in a certain incarnation with a certain amount of development. But to, uh, or for Neem Karoli Baba and a few others that we can name, uh, you know, great, great, you know, beings, and avatars, whatever word. Siddhas is, is a good Siddhas, yeah. yeah for them, it's no effort. It's just there. They're there, they're there, they're here, they're everywhere. But for us, um, it's a revelation, and it happens all the time. If we were to write it down every time something like this happened, that we had a premonition or something uh, that worked out, um, it would be remarkable. I think it would be in the thousands. It would be great if these guys proved this thing out, and then science is suddenly substantiating, and this is what His Holiness has been working with the, the neuroscience uh, people for many years, you know, they take their monks and they use them as guinea pigs related to uh, going into deep meditation and so on. So you know, this is all good that this gets uh, in people's consciousness and it actually it just turns them a little bit out of the rationality. And this is the only existence we have is through our senses. 
the next clip, uh, it's from Empathy and uh, Artificial Intelligence, and it's episode 393, so that's a big jump forward. And we have Google Empathy Lab's Ananda Daniel Credit Cobb describing the process of merging Ramdas's compassion and love with cutting-edge AI technology. Before we discuss the nuances of translating heart teachings for scientific minds... And she, of course, uh, one of the main things Google Empathy Lab does is inform uh, all of Google personnel. Well, and go that far, but certainly we hope uh, she, we, she hopes to reach, uh, you know, the developers of AI and uh, with a little bit of the human values that can be instilled in these uh, futuristic entities right so uh yeah great discussion with her a great clip um so google empathy lab though just um a a little bit of a defining well a yeah what i i know you're saying that some of what danny did and what he represents around emotional intelligence and of course, Ram Dass's basic unconditional love, compassion legacy. And uh, okay, that's a jumping off point. How did we get <laughs> to Google empathy? <laughs> um, well, I've been in technology for like 20 years. I was at Apple before Google and, and um, have been around for some kind of epic moments uh, in terms of things launching out into the universe. And one of them was the iPhone. And I think what was interesting is I was in my twenties with Steve at that moment, Steve Jobs. And, um, when it came out, I was just so brimming with hope and possibility and optimism and just like computers are a bicycle for the mind. How can this be this, this liberating thing where we're not chained to computers? And it's like the kind of sunny optimism of a young mind that can make that mistake. And then in the decade following it, doing the work that I did, I saw all the unintended consequences and, the, you know, it's not just the phone, it's kind of social media. There are just all of these um, ways in which these devices and these technologies creep into our lives and steal a bit from us and distract us. And so the idea of the deep indwelling wholeness that we are all born with and can get knocked out of us or we can get banged up and bruised by life and lose our remembrance of it what I didn't love was that technology was selfish and kind of in its own set of agendas and even trying to do the right thing somehow doesn't always, you know, intention can be flawed. There was this space where there are all these brilliant people coming up with incredible inventions that were meant to serve people, but they were being born from kind of the neck up in this real cognitive intellectual space. So they're genius solutions to hard problems, but they're not taking care of everything from the neck down. And we know it's like not just the spiritual, emotional, physical heart that beats us. It's how to take care and restore the wholeness, how to do it with humor, how to do it with, you know, that compassion and wisdom of heart. And I think for, for me, I got to a place where the Empathy Lab was born because I, I couldn't really stand pretending like that wasn't the case. I couldn't pr- like stand the pretending that I was just going to come to work and do smart things and feel, try to feel good about that. It was just, it just felt like such bullshit and such a lie. And, um, it became this 
this moment where I was working at Google X, which is kind of where the self-driving cars and all the moonshots come from. And, and I was looking at some of the things we were doing and just saying, isn't there another way? Can't we just allow more of ourselves in the room? Can't we be all of who we are? Can't we acknowledge our feelings? Can't we acknowledge the feelings of the people on the other side? And my favorite example is, you know, and this is like the unsexiest thing you could possibly talk about, but like, I was um, helping someone who was working on calendar stuff, like, you know, just calendar. (laughs) And she was talking about this woman who was getting a divorce and would schedule a little bit of time right before she was going to drop her son off and pick her son up from her exes. And that time was so she could get present, check in with herself, get it together so she could show up for her son and not let everything else bleed into that moment. And I was like, that is not a calendar appointment. That is another thing entirely. How do I, how do I get more people to pay attention to and take care of that? And so the Empathy Lab was born from this space of how can technology be more humane and, and more the way that we really are, not even the way that we think we are. So that was like the longest answer everywhere. ever. It was more Hemingway than haiku. So forgive me. <laughs> I can't imagine, though, you going into executive's office at Google and gave that rap and they went, Okay, it's a great idea. Get out there and do it. And here's a whole pile of money. <laughs> I don't know. You know what? It's funny. I used to joke in the beginning, my meetings with executives, I'd come in with so much neuroscience and so much kind of evolutionary. Bio- I would talk about neurobiology a lot. And when you speak science, a trust kind of enters the room like a sweet perfume for scientists and technologists. And it's like, you know, it's like that great story that Patanjali tells of how like the snake has to have a thousand heads and that's why the screen so that the students can be spoken to with the mouth that needs to speak to that one ear. It's like Google speaks the language of science. So I spoke the language of science, but Mm. I joke that the goal of the meeting was to speak science. Because if I were just to walk into a room and say like, all right, guys, we're going to talk about feelings. Like people would just internally liquefy and their places would melt like the Ark of the Covenant scene in, in Raiders. So, um, so yeah, it, it, it took a lot of science, but there's, there's a thing that happened when like the Google microphone went on and there was the Google assistant and Siri and Alexa and you get to this place where this isn't just products. This isn't just AI. It's presences. We're literally designing these beings, these ambient, invisible, intangible beings that can't help but hit the deeper, invisible, intangible parts of ourselves. And that's why we have to care for the invisible in a, in a way that, um, in a way that folks in technology, you don't learn these things in computer science programs. You, we, we know you don't even learn, learn these things in liberal arts or humanities programs. You learn this the hard way by being a human on earth. And to bring those lessons in is so critical for all these like huge technologies. It's, it's why at the Nobel table, they're poets and peacemakers. It's not all scientists. Mm. You know, And it's, it's, it's why like Ram Dass went on the second chapter of his hero's journey. It's why... Harvard happening was the best thing ever because it brought him to India. It's like the journey outside of the space, you know, is the one that will take you to the place you really want to go. And Google sometimes gets that. (laughs) Mm. You know, it's when you, what really triggered me when we decided, Hey, let's uh, see what we can do together here. 
was the idea of informing those wonderful scientists uh, about the reality that can work step by step and alongside of the science, which is what's really real that holds this whole universe together, which is, there is no great word for it, but uh, the uh, Maharaji said love is more powerful than electricity. So Mm. that's a very, I mean, from Mm. him, it was the most profound thing and I'm saying it and it's not as profound, but the reality is we do know the power of uh, love, especially what we're really talking about, of course, is unconditional love, which is synonymous with real compassion. And don't we want that in our machines as time goes on? Uh, yeah, talk a little bit about what, what your idea was related to helping everyone out, all the science guys. Well, I think it's this, I mean, Ramdas in the film that we ended up making together, all of us, um, says, you know, intellect is just one way of knowing the world, but you also know the world through your heart. And that lens, that portal, that opening has no boundaries. And it's a way that you feel the universe by being one with it. And I think what's interesting is, uh, I was just having a conversation actually with some of our AI scientists yesterday. And what's so interesting is there you science loves to have hypotheses that sometimes look like facts, but the mystery and the poetry is never not there. It's, do you have the courage as a scientist to point at it and say, I have no idea what happens there. Is the cat dead or alive? We know quantum physics describes the world, but we don't exactly know why. We just know there are these rules. And it's this kind of like intrepid heart that says, I'm going to pass through that space, even though I don't understand it, because magic always lies on the other side of mystery. And I think so what again, it's like, what language are you speaking? Because it's always the it's always the invisible glue that that unconditional love the 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 nature of interconnection is and, and actually there's so many people that do brilliant work that i've i've like met through the work like this man david sloan wilson who's an evolutionary biologist and he talks about how you know everything in history is a footnote to the one specific evolutionary trait of our planet and even of our galaxy which is that cooperation always wins. Mm. And I look at these like lessons that are taught to us by nature. It's like honeybees and voles and whales. You know, there's that beautiful show right now called Secrets of the Whales. It's like communication and culture. And it's like, what's the flavor of interconnectedness? And I think the the core of the like kind of in the periodic table of interconnectedness carbon is love it is the thing that makes us all up and when you think of love like scientifically or in terms of it's like you know kind of molecular makeup if you want to go that way with it it's just the thing that brings things together it's the thing that makes everything one thing and something that naturally shares and works together flourishing thriving and i think so it's interesting because i find myself like harry potter style speaking one language and then speaking parcel tongue and then speaking, but it's always talking about the same thing. And what surprises me the most is 
just when you think you're talking about science, someone will talk about their son or daughter or a moment that they had in the ocean. And that's when you know they're talking about the thing that we all talk about when we talk about, you know, Sabak and what it means to be in, in the heart of true love. And next on board, we have what we called lifting and gifting, because we got together with um, Dr. Bruce Damer. This is episode 325. That's if you want to go and catch the whole thing. Uh, there you can. There you go. Uh, he's a scientist, space mission designer. Okay. I know he, I remember when we first talked, he talked about he was he was consulting with the Japanese government about um, landing uh, these incredible robots on different planets. I mean, it was just fascinating. Uh, and he's and cyberspace pioneer Bruce he uncovers his new findings surrounding the oh that's what he's he's totally dedicated to finding the origins of life and consciousness and uh, trading what did he say trading the separation myth of quote unquote survival of the fittest for the lifting and gifting of community cooperation and collaboration. I love Bruce. Bruce is just fantastic. He's a true heart brother. He really is. Uh, so here you go. Listen. So I've been on this track for since I was 14, a little kid in Kamloops. Like, how did life begin? And we're, we're in a, a revolution now, a cycling system that not only could bring life out of the background of the physics of the cosmos, but it's an explanatory, it's a teacher. You know, it's a great teacher that teaches us how things are spun up, how things are made on a daily basis. Uh, it's like a great dirge that's spinning within spinning within spinning. We may have found the formula for this gosh darn thing that how how it works. Really, I mean that's a huge statement. Wow. Yeah, so it, it's really simple. Um, it, in the wet, dry cycling pools of the Archean or, or Hadean, you had these volcanic hot springs, and they would dry down and refill and dry down and refill. And falling into them was meteorite material and dust from the early solar system, feeding them with the organics, sort of inoculating these pools. And then as the pool dried down, a bathtub ring would form hmm. of, of uh, fats, like fatty stuff, like you'd see the foam in the ocean at the ocean and the bathtub ring is the synthesis engine to create polymers stitch them together and then when the pool refills the outer layers of these bathtub rings bought off trillions of compartments that each contain random polymers and we're going to do this again next month in new zealand in the hot springs there uh, we did i did it last year and as a result of this continuous drying down to the moist phase and then drying to a dry phase and then coming back and back and back, it's a cycle that can lift individual random polymers. They start doing jobs, like they're chips on a roulette wheel, really, or those balls. They land on something that's valuable and they get selected you know, by the great gambler in the sky. Uh, and then some suddenly these protocells are called have functions. They have very primitive functions and more of them appear and they grow into these globular masses called aggregates or progenotes. And it's this 
unit that we think is the common ancestor of all life, the progenote. Uh, and here's the thing for philosophy and for spiritual thought from that. Mm. Similar to relativity theory that came into the 1920s, we're entering the 2020s with the following new profound insight from science, which is that we do not come from a common ancestor. You know, there's Darwinian selection, of course, is a real thing. But when Herbert Spencer coined the term survival of the fittest, he created, you know, what Ramdas always calls like this myth uh, of separation, that we are separate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So where this ties into Ramdas's teachings is that, in fact, science may be on the verge of showing that the deepest common ancestor of all life was a community in collaboration, not individuals in competition. It's wow. it's it's breathtaking, and that because you know uh, hippies have said we are all one, and you know ecologists have said it's all interconnected. You can't tweak one part and expect the other part to do well because everything is bound together. But this is actually where we've unwound life to its start point. And we'll restart and start that process of moving toward a living world and watch how the algorithms click together. And it's this crowding and interconnected networks grow and then a memory system rises. It's called PIM, Probability Shaping Interconnection and Memory. Hmm. And I had a dream one night uh, on, on Ram Dass's best friend, uh, <laughs> one particular night about three or four years ago. And the dream, you know, grabbed my shirt collar and said, let me show you how you were made. And it showed, yeah, it showed this PIM thing and this cycling system driven by the sun rising for 4 billion years, like clockwork, pushing energy in. And it showed this silver spire climbing, climbing, climbing from the flat base of microbes into uh, complex beings in that spire, in that sort of icicle. And then it showed the stacking getting faster and faster and this somehow this field emerging which we might call the ethereal field, or Jung called it uh, the synchronous field. Some call it God or unity consciousness or whatnot. But it's made by this PIM cycling, cycling, cycling. Every organism is doing it. Every organism is running through these three phases continuously. And what we're doing right now, Raghu, is we're crowded together in a podcast in Zoom so that we, when we interact, we pass symbolic messages around. That's interconnection. So probability is the, the probability is that we're going to come up with things we never would have otherwise. And then we're making a memory of this, and we're going to share it. And that's called cultural evolution. So this PIM thing that we found or on the way to the chemistry may be a universal, mm. what's called a toe, a theory of everything. So... I've been presenting it to philosophers, and Ken Wilber was very much into it, and mm. Deepak Chopra was, you know, grokking it. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and it's it's kind of an interesting thing. So, what does this mean for humanity? It means that from the very taproot of the most freaking uh, reductionist science, these are non-woo people. You know, chemists are very non-woo. <clears throat> our non-woo brethren. They're, our non-woo brethren. They are going to be looking down the barrel of a microscope in five years, 10 years, or whatever, two years, watching this protocellular mass growing through cycle after cycle after cycle after cycle. They're going to stress it with something, like put some salt in or high uh, ultraviolet radiation, watch it crash, and watch it regrow. And then they're going to 
sequence it and determine, oh, there's evolution has happened. Molecular evolution, it looks like a thing that's alive that can respond. And from that, I think of that image like being like seeing the Earth from space on Apollo 8. Mm. Mm. Like we're seeing the process that made us, that, that lifted the living world from the non-living, and that it is a communal complex in uh, in collaboration in nature. So anyway, that's the the hope for this work right. uh, to come into the our you know the sphere of our consciousness. Mm. So uh, evolution is not survival of the fittest. Correct. <laughs> Yeah, it's not. It it is. So, in another dream state, about five years ago, I was with Dennis McKenna in the Sacred mm. Valley. Yeah, I know that. And again, the ethereal, ineffable entity grabs my shirt collar. <laughs> you know, the, that's why I wear collared uh, yeah, garments sure so that a... so that ethereal or ineffable entities can grab hold and get my attention. <laughs> uh, so, oh, that's great. <laughs> so then, this in this period, it said, "Let me show you." Uh, another view of evolution, and it showed protocells, or they could have been seen as organisms, moving, 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 sliced a plane through them, and it was like Abbott's flatland. There's a grid, and the organisms come up through the grid like, like bubbles and reproduce on the top of the grid. And then another grid slams down upon them, and that's the selection pressure. And then one pops up, one little fortuitous protocell or stellar living thing pops up and reproduces on the top of the new selection pressure and then another one slaps down and these things are moving up and up and up and the ethereal being saying what asked what do you see and i said i don't know some kind of things seem to sort of go through and it it, it lifts and it sort of gifts what it has learned or its polymers to the next level and then it goes away. It may be selected out and another one goes up. So the ineffable said, what do you see in this grid and these, these entities coming up through? And I said, it's kind of a lifting. One lifts the polymers of its evolution that, that managed to make it through that grid and reproduces. But then the next time there's this pressure, another one does it. And it's the backwards way of looking at evolution. It's not survival of the fittest at all. It's a lifting and a gifting between states. They lift up, they get through, they give their innovation to the next level of community, which then has to carry it and carry it and carry it. Mm. And at that point, the ineffable grabs my shirt collar again and says, you listen and you listen good. Your man Darwin got it right. This is how you were made. but." Language came in called survival of the fittest. And that is a very uh, destructive language. It's destroying you and it's destroying your world. And change the language so that you can really communicate the beauty of the process that made you without this divisive, divisive uh, language, which, of course, led to social Darwinism in the 20th century and business Darwinism, which is all wrong. And so... Can we, and you identify, can we roll this language out of the culture? Mm. And it goes back again to Ramdas's teaching, which is uh, this myth of separation. Because you know, certainly survival of fittest creates a sense that I have to be fitter than you. Yeah. And it's a very Victorian idea. 
you know, of course, the white people with the top hats wearing brocade coats in the desert are the fitter, right? Than a Bedouin, right? Does that make any sense to us? No, no. Uh, so there's there's the big role for the twenties. Hmm. Um, lifting and giving. Lifting and gifting. Sort of lifting making. and gifting. Yeah. It's even more better. I mean, so as, you know, as as Ramdas passed in the last 17, 18, 19 years since his stroke, he efforts were made, you know, on, on the miracle of medicine and a huge amount of care allowed him to gift us probably the, some of the greatest teachings, mm-hmm. you know. So in a sense, the selection barrier came down on Ramdas of the stroke. And it's it sheared off all that extraneous stuff, the kind of the cage of fame and this and that made him into like I have to have help to take a shit. How mm. could I help you? Became how can I? You know all that. Yep. And and that shaved off that layer to allow Ramdas in a new form to gift us uh, something really potent coming forward and we had another 20 years goodness gracious of that teaching that was evolved and it could only have been evolved by the severe selection pressure of the stroke Mm, amazing yeah amazing yeah yeah and next clip is from episode 419 419 god i don't pay attention to this stuff it's kind of scary and it's called All the Time in the World, and I did it with Lisa Broderick, and we explore time change, perception, and awareness through the lens of quantum mechanics and mindfulness. And illuminating, it illuminates how science's observer effect connects to Ramdas's practice of loving awareness and witness. So then, okay, this happened to you, and obviously a major transforma- transformational moment. Yes. And then... Then, and you started my, to be able to grasp things intellectually in a way that, uh, you know, as you become more of a mature adult, how did I, it through teenage years? Yeah, tell me about that. I was I was handed um, uh, the Tao of Physics and the Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. A couple of books, right, that you definitely want to consume when you're thinking about these types of things. But I had a framework. It wasn't when? just theoretical in my teens. Uh-huh. How did these books get to me? Yeah. Well, so the Tao of Physics was just published. So this was the 70s, right? And um, consumed that. And the reason I consumed, it was given to me by an interested friend who was a a quite learned man who who knew some of the stories and experiences that I was having because I'd shared them. And the difference is I had a framework. And on which to uh, on which to hang these theories. To me, it wasn't theoretical; it was practical. It was actually happening. Consciousness: what is consciousness? What is time? Slowing down time, all of that. And then the breakthrough came. Sorry, listeners, when I became a meditator, and I met a friend of mine who was uh, who was a TM meditator. He was a teacher. He was in England. And actually, I said to him these words. We were walking around Central Park, and I said, you know, Stephen, I have, I have forgotten how to pray. And he said, well, he said, have you ever meditated? I said, no. This, I was in my 20s. And he said, get yourself to, you know, the Transcendental Meditation Program, mm-hmm. which I did do, and was an immediate, uh, was an immediate um, 
drink of water. In fact, mm. it was like mm. diving into a pool of co- of cool water that was so mm. refreshing and startling at the same time. Mm. I, w- I was made for it. And mm. that's when I realized that time is not what we think. Mm. It's related to brainwave states. Of course, in meditation, you could sit for hours and think a moment has passed. In TM, you could say to yourself, I want to be out of here in 20 minutes, and you will be teaching yourself to wake up according to quote time. Mm. So that really opened things up. But so along you're doing, with the, yeah. you're doing this as a teenager, you're talking about being a teenager, reading well, these books my, and interacting. And <laughs> I was in my twenties when I learned oh, to meditate. Oh, yeah, or, okay. yeah, yeah, I was in my twenties by then. But still was, you were reading these books. You said when you were a teenager. Yes. Yeah, I was curious. I was curious. Okay. And I wasn't realized, doing that. Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> Different path. Right. Same, same. Uh, I was miserable path. And I wish I could have gotten the Tao of physics at that moment. Uh, Well, I was lucky in that way Hmm. and continued on this path and realizing where and then, of course, Tao of physics, we started quantum mechanics started to really come to the fore in the 80s. And, uh, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of pioneers who were thinking about how science interacts with ancient spirituality back then. Mm, so the yeah. Shakti Gawains and the Jack Canfields and the Cornfields and all of these people talking about all these things really got me going. Because, mm. again, it wasn't theoretical. I had a, an experience. I could slow down time. I could drop a wine glass and catch it by the stem still. Hmm. And as I learned to do it more, I got so better that's, at it. Yeah, well, that's uh, without meditation practice and being able to become into a one-pointed focus. Right, you could not do that. This is not possible. Yeah. So, but it developed with me organically. Again, the childhood death averted, as I had been told by the Joytish. And decided eventually, you know, in a Western tradition, in Eastern traditions, people might have this wisdom, which they stumble upon and they pick them, you know, and they and they go into a cave and they become ascended or even rainbow painting. Right. One of my favorite books. But with me, I was rainbow told, painting. Wait a minute. Rainbow, rainbow painting. So Buddhism, right. Buddhism dream work. Oh, right, with a, a Rinpoche wrote a book called Rainbow Painting, where you you dissolve into uh, light at the end of your life rather than go anywhere. Very fascinated with that. In any event, I had all of these concepts around me, but I decided to come back to the Western world and see if I could teach them. And I met a Kabbalist in New York City who was my spiritual teacher, Dr. Jerry Epstein, who was a medical doctor and a Kabbalist from an ancient Kabbalah tradition. And he's he has gone to the other side now. But in my almost 20 years of working with him, he had a lot of knowledge about these things. And I began to integrate the practices of meditation and Kabbalah and all of the ancient, these ancient spiritual traditions with science to try to explain slow down time. And that mm. is the long story of where the book came from. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. But I'm going to, uh, no but at all, I want to just uh, just sort of open up a couple of different things about it that Again, for me, it's about how do we relate this to our day-to-day lives. That's mm. the purpose of mind rolling in a brief few words. Um, so here's something you explain that because reality is solely a result of who we are, our fears combined with the stories told over and over in our mind become our creation. They become our life. And you call this the observer effect from modern science. So mm. the observer effect, it, to me, would be 
part of the ubiquitous term mindfulness and awareness and how that can be used in day-to-day life. But let me let you talk about the observer effect. Well, let's dial back a little bit to the to what I tried to come up with, and I'm very practically minded as you are, and that is if we can do these things, and a lot of the, the stories I was collecting about other people's experiences, how could we do them when we wanted to do them? How could we use them to lead our best possible lives? And I came up with this formula. When you study, when I studied time, when one studies time, you realize that time is rooted in change. No change, mm-hmm. no time. Number one, right? So entropy, the things that thing, the idea that in physics that things grow, decay, and die, right? Or just the fact that clocks move and suns move and planets move and we record time. The time is really a linear construct that we've made up mm-hmm. for, let's say, this plane of existence. That's how I explain it. So time is one part physical and it's one part perception. How did I know that? I can catch the wine glass by its stem in slow motion. All of the stories have slowed down time while people are in danger or other time, or just, you know, time slips, as they're called. You're holding your newborn and three hours go by and you think it's a minute, right? As Einstein famously said, when you're with a pretty girl, an hour seems like a minute. When your hand's on a hot stove, a minute seems like an hour, (laughs) right? It's all relative. Or vice versa. Or vice versa. If that's true, (laughs) then we are able, we are in control, at least in part of the equation. So let's use that equation, the part of the equation that we we control through a meditative practice, not to not such heavy lifting. The type of meditation combines TM and Kabbalah so that it's much quicker to get people into the time of no time, we'll call it, right? Mm-hmm. That wonderful place of manifestation. So that we can use that to control our perception of time. That's what the that is what the uh, book posits. And to answer your question. It, it supposes this question or poses this question, explores it, and that is, does how we show up for a situation in our minds affect reality, in particular, the passage of time? That's the observer effect. In our minds, we're showing up to a situation, the scientists watching the, the photon particle go through and become a wave, Right. We showing up to a wedding or a check coming or a desire we have, which again, we can do an exercise and practice that in a moment. Does how we show up affect reality? The answer is yes. And this is how it does for our big lives, not just the micro world of quantum mechanics, but our big lives of asteroids and cars and people in Zoom meetings. (laughs) (laughs) Can I give you an analogy for what you're saying? It is completely different, but it comes from Ramdas in the last years of his life. He encouraged everyone to move from the perspective of mind and down into the center of one's being into the from the perspective of loving awareness. Mm. So no judgment, no nothing, just being completely enveloping everything that you encounter in that uh, that wonderful um, refreshing change of perspective into embracing rather than pushing away, judging, running from in fear and so on. Sure. To me, there's that is exactly what you're talking about when you're talking about the uh, the observer effect. Now, in our final clip, uh, which goes all the way back to episode fifty-one of Mind Rolling, we're back with my partner 
David Silver, and we speak with Enthro. God, this is what Dennis McKenna. We talked to Dennis, an ethnopharmacologist. That's what Dennis is. Uh, and we talk about, you know, his brother, Den- a- a Terence, who is such an important figure in the psychedelic world. Uh, and, of course, talk about that and curiosity and the relationship between science and mysticism, our brain's models of reality, and what Ramdas means by be here now. And last but not least, the miracle is in the mystery. That's a whole other anthology which we could do around the mystery, around the transition of life to death. Okay, there you go. There's an idea. But meanwhile, what what I'd love for you guys that are listening, and uh, you know, we'll play this this final clip now. But please do give us feedback and tell us whether this is something interesting where we create because i have we have so much content it seems cool to kind of get different um windows from different people on a particular theme and topic so let me know or let us know you just go to be here now network.com and or is it just info at BeHereNowNetwork.com? That's it. Just make some comments. Or you, I think there's a place to make comments on the site, too. And let us know. Yeah, this is great. Keep doing it. Or this is a bore. I don't want to hear it anymore. Whatever. Whatever. I think it's great. And so does uh, the uh, staff at Be Here Now Network. So give it a try, give it a spin, and uh, and we'll we'll do it again. I mean, I think it's worthy. Thank you very much for listening. Here's the final epi- uh, clip uh, for, uh, around this great uh, theme, I believe, um, of science and spirituality, which was something very close to Ramdas's heart, actually. Thank you for being here. Here you go. By the way, I want everybody to know that it's uh, Terence's birthday, but we had no idea, and we, I mean Dave and I, uh, and, and just were in conversation, email back and forth through a friend with Dennis, and this just, this date was, uh, there was a bunch of different uh, ideas, let's do it in the next couple of weeks or whatever, and I said this date without knowing that. Mm-hmm. So really, happy happy birthday, Terrence and uh, 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 Dave. Why don't you let's get into the meat of uh, well, uh, of yeah. this. Well, let's you know what we do on our, our podcast a lot, Dennis. Is is we we try to go back to origins of passion, of of interest, of devotion, and so on. Okay. And in your case, you know, you describe in the book, you say that Terrence and yourself were big picture people from the start. Big picture yeah. people. So right. let's let's go back a little bit and see what the stimulants were for both of you to do such really, really amazing work. Well, I think um, you know there were there were uh, multiple influences in our childhood. A big one was science fiction. You know, I would have to say, and that that really has to do with uh, this our preoccupation with the future. And with things, you know, edgy and kind of out of the ordinary, I mean, that was a big, a big driver of curiosity. And, and also, I think, 
I think curiosity itself, you know, we were just curious about things. And I mean, I, I went into uh, science and Terrence never really practiced science, but we were both fascinated with it. And, uh, and we had this complimentary, you know, sort of complimentary view of phenomena. And we were both quite interested in it. Terrence was more of a skeptic of science. I was, and I was always, I mean, I, I practiced science, but I, I never necessarily just bought into it uh, because actually it's the job of a scientist to, to question everything. Uh, but also to have curiosity, you know, curiosity is what drives science or should be what drives science. Dennis, I have a question. Back then, when so you, when you were doing and you really got into and uh, DMT and so on, what what was the day to day experience after you know much you have taken taken it many times and experienced you know what you're speaking of many times? How did it and how did it start to transform your day to day life related to? Uh, just the most simple, um, you know, compassion, love, you know, those simple, uh, quote-unquote, spiritual terms, but they're at being at ease with whatever came your way. How, how did this affect that, all of that? Well, I think, uh, I, think, I think DMT itself didn't so much do that. I think... I think that ayahuasca mushrooms have much more of a, a sort of um, influence on uh, on those things, uh, love and compassion, and and uh, sense of trans, a sense of being part of a cosmic. Uh, you know, a, a cosmic mystery, something, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the characteristic uh, effects of psychedelics is you feel, you feel at one with everything. It mm-hmm. almost, it almost sounds like a cliche, but one of the things you, uh, you understand from this or that you bring back with it, with you is the idea that, you know, number one, we we are very limited beings in our in our normal everyday consciousness, and we need to acknowledge that and realize the limitations of our knowledge. And we also, along with that, we need to be humble. Um, you know, in, in a sense that we need to not get too full of ourselves. And th- this is a lesson that ayahuasca, especially. Uh, re-emphasizes to me and and to a lot of people all the time. It's like, you know, remember, you don't know shit. You Mm -hmm. don't know shit, you know? Mm -hmm. And you have to say, well, actually, you're right. I don't know shit. (laughs) I don't know if you can use that on a podcast, but, but, you know, the... Yes, we can. (laughs) You can. I want to quote something back at you, Dennis, which you wrote in the book, which I love. You said, which connects with what you just said. You said, you seize control of the machinery that generates reality. Reality becomes whatever you want it to be. Now, someone could take that as being just, you know, dilettantism, but I know what you're talking about. And, and I'd like you to expand upon that a little bit, both from a, an objective, if you can be, you know, scientific, analytic, even reductionist point of view, and, a, and a, a subjective spiritual point of view. Creating reality, is it real? 
Well, yeah. I mean, here you're you're really getting into some some deep uh, metaphysical and philosophical waters because I don't think we can say right now. I mean, we know if just just forget the psychedelic experience for a minute. We know that we live that what we call ordinary reality and you know what we perceive on a on a day-to-day minute by minute basis doesn't resemble reality at all it's a hallucination it's a dream it's a movie our brains take in information from from the external world through sensory channels don't do things to it, you know, process that through the associative centers and essentially <clears throat> generate what I've called, you know, the, the reality hallucination or the serotonin hallucination or, or you know, they generate a, a model of reality. And that's the model that we inhabit. Reality itself, physics tells us we know enough from our instruments of measurement and so on that that uh, the external real world it's out there somewhere and in some ways it, it you know it, it 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 doesn't really resemble the world that we inhabit we have to synthesize our reality in order to survive in order to move you know within this reality the model that we create has a certain survival value and uh, but it doesn't it doesn't really it's not reality it's a it's a, a model of reality that is more or less useful and then we can come along and and we can change the channel you know we can change we can take a drug and we can look at another channel or we can meditate or we can experience sleep for example we can alter uh, you know, our states of awareness are modulated by our physiology in lots of ways, so we can alter reality within within limits uh, and experience these other modalities as well. And, and I think that the the uh, you know the I think a main challenge for neuroscience and all this interest all this interest right now in trying is trying to relate we can say a lot about what the brain does but crossing making that connections between what the brain does what parts of the brain light up when you're having a mystical experience and you're in an fmri machine or something like that you can say well you know the frontal cortex is lit up the limbic system is a lot of activity there how do you cross that threshold to what you're experiencing your your self being in the world that's the key challenge for neuroscience in this century, and I don't know that it's up to it. I don't know that we'll ever be able to, to uh, you know, to answer those questions. You have a question, David? Well, I, I just wanted to a quote that you, 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 that Terence McKenna said, which I love, which is, I wanted you to just mention this. And you had what you called a quantum entanglement with your brother. So you can speak to this. Terence said, mm-hmm. the, universe, the universe is not only queerer than we suppose, but queerer than we can suppose. Yes. I think that's an amazing. Just elaborate on that for a moment, would you? 
Well, that was actually a, that's a quote from JBS Haldane, and and that oh. was one of his one of Terence's favorite quotes, and and mine too as as well, because I think you know in a nutshell that encapsulates you know where we find ourselves existentially, right? I mean the the lesson that I get from ayahuasca uh, and all these psychedelics, but ayahuasca has, you know, lately become my, you know, my main teacher, I guess. I certainly respect mushrooms and I use them and I get a lot out of them, but I, I, I use ayahuasca on a much more regular basis. But, but the lesson that comes from all of these things is for me, it's number one, you know, there's no excuse for arrogance because you don't know shit, right? So that's that's number one. Don't get full of yourself. Realize how little you know. And the, but the other side of that coin is revel in or or take take pleasure in the fact that we do know so little. Meaning, uh, so that means the the universe is a much more marvelous place than we can ever imagine, you know, and that's basically what JBS Haldane said. It's much stranger than you think it is. And it's, uh, and it's, it's great. It's, it's miraculous. It's wonderful. And, and uh, because there's no end to learning, right? If you, if you, if you reach a point where you say, well, I, I basically, I've studied all my life. I've studied all these things. I still don't know anything. That means, you have a whole lot to learn. You have a not only a lifetime, but lifetimes upon lifetimes of learning and exploring. Well, for a, a curious person, you know, who's motivated by by wonder, uh, that's that's paradise. That's a miracle, and, and that's kind of where uh, you know where where I try to live my life from that perspective. Mm. I get up every morning, you know. Damn grateful I'm still here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Looking forward to whatever the day is going to reveal. I mean, I have aches and pains and complaints and problems like everybody else, but basically, we live in a marvelous, miraculous universe, and uh, we should just uh, be thankful for that. That's uh, that's incredible. And mm. when you think about how unlikely that all is, mm. you know, um, the, and that's, the the miracle is the mystery. The miracle is the mystery. Yeah. That's good. Could, uh, Dave, and I, I, I think Ram Dass's perception uh, with all of this, when you really think about it, be here now, yeah, you don't have any other choice because that's what's here. Yeah. You know, all the rest of this stuff is uh, your memories, your anticipation of the future, everything else is a construct. But what we can say is that here we are in the present moment. Mm -hmm. 